Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. So we're going to be talking about the problem of beauty tonight and how Jesus secures true beauty for us. What I mean by the problem of beauty is, is two things, really. We live in a world in which the concept and the idea and the standards of what is considered beautiful are often arbitrary and oppressive. I don't think I have to prove that to you, but I will pick one sample quote from a book that I found helpful by Gene Kilborn. It's called Can't Buy My Love. It's about advertising and the effects of advertising. And she says this, 17, a magazine aimed at girls about 12 to 15, sells these girls to advertisers in an ad in the advertisers magazine, not in 17 itself, but in the, in the trade magazine selling 17 as the place to advertise. You get that? So it tells the, the, sells these girls to advertisers in an ad that says this, she's the one you want, she's the one we've got. The copy continues, she pursues beauty and fashion at every turn and concludes with, it's more than a magazine, it's her life. In another similar ad in the same magazine, 17 refers to itself as a girl's Bible. Girls of all ages get the message that they must be flawlessly beautiful, and above all, these days they must be thin. Even more destructively, they get the message that this is possible, that with enough effort and self-sacrifice and the right products, they can achieve this ideal. Advertising constantly promotes, and get this, the core belief of American culture that we can recreate ourselves, transform ourselves, transcend our circumstances, but with a twist. For generations, Americans believed this could be achieved if we worked hard enough. Today, the promise is that we can change our lives instantly, effortlessly, by winning the lottery, selecting the right mutual fund, having a fashion makeover, losing weight, having tighter abs, buying the right car or soft drink. It is this belief that such transformation is possible that drives us. This American belief that we can transform ourselves makes advertising images much more powerful than they otherwise would be. But it's not just oppressive for girls and teenage girls. It's oppressive for guys as well. Naomi Wolf, who wrote a very important book called The Beauty Myth, maybe some of you have read or know about, also wrote an article that I found very helpful called The Porn Myth. And she says this, at a benefit the other night, I saw Andrea Dworkin, the anti-porn activist most famous in the 80s, for her conviction that opening the floodgates of pornography would lead men to see real women in sexually debased ways. If we did not limit pornography, she argued, before internet technology made that prospect a technological impossibility, most men would come to objectify women as they objectified porn stars and treat them accordingly. In a kind of domino theory, she predicted rape and other kinds of sexual mayhem would surely follow. So was she right or wrong? She was right about the warning, wrong about the outcome. As she foretold, pornography did breach the dike that separated a marginal adult private pursuit from the mainstream public arena. The whole world post-internet did become pornographized. Young men and women are indeed being taught what sex is, how it looks, and what its etiquette and expectations are by pornographic training, and this is having a huge effect on how they interact. But the effect is not making men into raving beasts. 
On the contrary, the onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real women and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as, quote-unquote, porn-worthy. Far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood, they can scarcely get, let alone hold, their attention. Here is what young women tell me on college campuses when the subject comes up. They can't compete, and they know it. For how can a real woman with pores and her own breasts and even sexual needs of her own, let alone with speech that goes beyond more and more, you big stud, possibly compete with a cyber vision of perfection, downloadable and distinguishable at will, who comes, so to speak, utterly submissive and tailored to the consumer's least specification. So it's not just women that have a problem. I don't know if any of you guys, well, you probably don't read Playboy. I don't read it either. But when I was at the John Mayer concert <laughs> at Bridgestone, yeah, Wendy and I went to the John Mayer concert. And that was the day that evidently he said some really crazy stuff and swore off pit Twitter and everything. So I was like, what did he say? Uh, I knew he said something crazy in this interview in, in, uh, on Playboy. So I tracked it down. And it was amazing the way he talked about how he preferred pornography to real women because of the way it was a controllable experience and he didn't have to deal with all the baggage and all the head games and all this kind of stuff. It was unbelievable how um, candid he was. So beauty is affecting everybody in oppressive ways. And many in our day, trying to fight against this, have, a, have, have taken an approach of trying to deconstruct beauty. If the standards are arbitrary then what we need to do is just break down all ideas of beauty. Bring it all down. And th this I call the Shrek approach. Do you guys remember? I don't remember how old you all were when the first movie came out, but it probably was formative for you. And now I'm about to say something about what I don't like about it, and that's a really risky thing to do, and half of you are going to walk out. Well, here's the thing. You remember at the end of the movie? I mean, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, isn't that clever? You know, because he wins the love of this princess, and they kiss, and what happens? Not what you expect. He's not an ogre, or he's not a prince trapped in an ogre's body, just the opposite. She is revealed as an ogre, right? Instead of the idea that he needs to become beautiful for her love, she ends up becoming ugly, but of course beautiful to him. And at one level, you watch that and you go, oh, that's a clever twist on what we all expect. But at another level, what it's saying is, that there is nothing beautiful, there is nothing ugly, it's all the same. And as a sort of a fighting back against arbitrary of standards of beauty that oppress us, maybe the answer is just to deconstruct the idea of beauty and reduce it to a meaningless concept. Who's really beautiful, the princess or the ogre? Well, they're both beautiful. In which case, beauty and ugliness, neither one have any meaning anymore. But guys, that doesn't work either. Because the fact is, our hearts still long for beauty. Our long, hearts long for beauty. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said this, We do not merely want to see beauty. Though God knows even that is beauty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, 
to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And it's why we still resonate with lines like these. I love this line from the Mumford and Sons song. There is a design, an alignment, a cry of my heart to see the beauty of love as it was made to be. And these lines from Thad Cockrell in a song he wrote with Matthew Ryan. Wonder of all wonders, everything has changed. Ever since I met you, beauty has a name. Beauty is a powerful concept, not just because it's, a, not because it's a social construction, but because we were made to connect with beauty. And so the fact is, we can't get rid of our longing for beauty. But the second part of the problem is we can't secure it for ourselves. We can't get it. We can't keep it. Beauty fades And we all know it. It's why our culture is so obsessed with youth. It's why it's so, it it just freaks people out to be around old people. That's why, you know, Brent is is strange. He enjoys it. But that's an unusual thing, right? It's unusual. It's glorious, but it's unusual. We don't like to be reminded that beauty fades. We don't want to be reminded that in, in, in an aspect of which matters more to our culture than almost anything else, we're already on the downward slide. Who wants to face that? If beauty is what you were made for, what do you do with the fact that you can't kill that desire for beauty, but you also can't secure it and hold on to it? It's fleeting. What does God have to say? We're going to look at a passage that is really a strange passage. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, but at the same time, it's one of the ugliest. It's in Zechariah chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at that. I have to grab my copy of that. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word. Now, let me just give you this, this quick little setup. The, the book of Zechariah is very interesting. It's a series of night visions. Okay? There's an angel that takes Zechariah, almost like Dickens sort of thing, um, and, and shows him these various visions. So the he that this starts with, then he showed me, is Zechariah saying, then the angel showed me this. And so what we're getting here is the vision that Zechariah was shown. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, his right side, to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see how these words change forever what it means to be beautiful. But Lord, we pray that we would not just see it, but we would feel it, and we would know it, and we would experience it. Clothe us with your beauty, even through the foolishness of preaching, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our story begins really with a pretty shocking scene. Joshua is standing before the Lord on the Day of Atonement. Now, I know it doesn't say the Day of Atonement here, but that's the scene. The reason we know that is that's the only day, the one day in the year, that the high priest was said to stand before the Lord. In the Jewish temple, you had various compartments, so to speak, various inner rings, and eventually you got into the Holy of Holies, but only one person went there, the high priest, And he only went there on one day. And so there was only one day out of the year in which you would say the high priest was standing before the Lord. Do you know what's in there in the Holy of Holies? It's the Ark of the Covenant. And it's the altar. And it's where you sprinkle the blood on the altar to cover Israel's sin for that year. And that's what's going on here. Joshua the high priest is there in the inner sanctum of the temple... And Zechariah would have known this because Zechariah, interestingly, is both a prophet and a priest. So he recognizes the scene and he understands the importance of what's going on here. This is the day when the high priest offers sacrifices to cover all of Israel's sins. But Satan is there too to accuse Joshua, the high priest. And as we see, as the scene unfolds, he has every right to be there accusing. Why? Because it says that Joshua, the high priest, is covered or is clothed in filthy clothes. Now, the NIV is nice in saying it that way. But what it really says in the Hebrew is that Joshua, the high priest, is covered in excrement. You get the picture? It's a ridiculous picture. It's a shocking picture. It's a horrifying picture. Because on this day, the Day of Atonement, the day that you need your high priest to be clean and spotless and to do everything just right so that God will overlook the sins of his people, on this day, Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord is covered in excrement. And and again, this would have been shocking to everybody 
in Israel hearing this story, reading this story. Why? Because there were incredible, elaborate preparations that the high priest went through on the Day of Atonement. Let me tell you a, a few of these. It was so important that he be ritually clean and that he be well prepared and well practiced with all the rituals and the ceremonies he was going to go through, that for a whole entire week he would be isolated from his family. He, the, the high priest, and they would rotate who was going to be high priest. It would change every year. And the high priest for that year would be separated from his family for a whole week before the day came. He stayed in a special little apartment that was connected to the temple so that he would not possibly come into contact with somebody or something that would be unclean. So they went to great lengths to make sure he didn't come into contact with anything unclean. The night before the Day of Atonement, he pulled an all-nighter with some of his closest friends. They would spend the night praying, and they would spend the night uh, encouraging him, and he would practice over and over and over again exactly what he was going to have to do so he wouldn't screw it up. He would begin the Day of Atonement itself at sunrise with all kinds of cleansing rituals. He would do this actually outside behind a linen screen. He would bathe himself in public five times as that day progresses. Five times in public but behind a screen. Why in public? So that everybody he's representing knows that this one is clean and spotless. He would wash his hands ten times in the various ceremonies that were going to go on that day. So that Israel would know that the one who was going to stand before God on their behalf was pure and was clean. And he wore special clothes, different clothes from any other day on the Day of Atonement. Every day the priests offered sacrifices, morning and evening. And they wore brightly colored robes when they worked in the temple. Except on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement they wore pure white linen robes. But what Zechariah sees in this vision is all wrong. It's all wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And it also is horrifying. Because what is God saying in this vision? Is God saying that everything you've been doing is worthless? That when I look at you, what I see is somebody covered in excrement. I know you've tried to do it right. I know you've tried to do all this stuff and obey the letter of the law exactly. But when I look at you, I see excrement. Is that, is that what's going on? I mean, it does say in Isaiah that our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags. Again, the NIV makes it nicer than it really is because it's really the word for a used menstrual cloth. Right? Now, you know, with the way the Jews understood blood to be unclean, that's a pretty gross image. It's a gross image anyway, but particularly in, your, in the religious understandings of the way blood functions, right? So God has been telling them sort of thing, and we get this shocking scene, because if the high priest fails in his duties on the Day of Atonement, Israel is still wallowing in her filth. But I think there's something even more shocking than the scene. And that's the unmerited grace. Look at this. The first thing the Lord says is he rebukes Satan. The Lord rebuke you. 
But he doesn't just say, knock it off, Satan. I know they're guilty. I know they're filthy. He actually silences the accuser by taking away the basis of the accusations. And guys, you got to understand, Christianity at its heart is about God silencing the accuser by taking away the basis of the accusations. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2, that that, um, Christ defeated the powers and the principalities at the cross by taking the law that stood opposed to it and nailing it to the cross by his death. And in doing that, he shamed publicly the powers and the principalities. Not just by saying, you guys have no power, but by removing the basis of the accusation, the law that stood opposed to us, the law that said, you must do this to live. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength from the moment you're born to the moment you die with no variation or you haven't got a chance of having a relationship with God. That's what the Bible says. But Jesus comes and nails that law to the cross. It no longer stands opposed to those who have fled to Christ for refuge. And that's the picture we have here. Satan says, They're guilty. They're filthy. They have the audacity to stand before you covered in excrement. You have to destroy them. And instead, God says, the Lord rebuke you. And then the Lord says, take off the filthy clothes and put on clean clothes. See, grace is not God overlooking sin. It's God dealing with sin. So that the basis for the accusation is gone. It's not God saying, I choose not to look at your sin anymore. It's dealing with your sin, taking it away. So that there is no more basis for the accusations of the enemy of our souls. His sin is dealt with. Symbolized by taking off the filthy clothes and putting on new ones. Think of it this way. If sin is ugliness, grace reclothes us. Grace reclothes us. But the other thing I love about this passage and this picture of grace here is the way the Lord cares for burning sticks. Think about an image of hopelessness. To be a burning stick in the fire. You haven't got much hope. There's not much hope that things are going to change when you're a burning stick in the fire. But God says, this one that I have chosen, this one Jerusalem that I've chosen, is like a burning stick snatched out of the fire. Grace is God reclaiming us when we had nothing we could do to help ourselves. Burning sticks don't put themselves out. They don't get out of fires. God snatches them out of the fire. And if you're someone who knows Jesus, it's because you've been snatched from the fire. You had no hope. But God says, these are my people. It's like he says to Satan, hey, don't you accuse them. That's my boy. That's my girl. And besides that, look, they're not filthy anymore. They're not guilty anymore. They're clean They're clean. How dare you 
accuse them. But he goes farther than that. Notice this. He doesn't just take off the filthy clothes. He doesn't just give him a bath. He gives him rich garments. And they put a white turban on his head. Now, this white turban is not the hat that a priest would normally wear. It's a royal head covering. It's a crown. So there's this fascinating imagery here that the priest has now been washed and cleansed. He's been given new, clean clothes, and he's given a royal head covering. It's a picture not of just being cleansed, though it is that, but even more. It's a picture of being made a king. One uh, Bible commentator puts it this way. Not only did the angels remove the soiled garments, they replaced them with rich finery. The high priest now stands in splendor, not abject shame. And then the Lord makes this astonishing promise to remove the sin of the land in a single day. Now, it's hard for us to understand how astonishing those words are. But what you need to understand is at this point in Israel's history, the Day of Atonement has been celebrated over a thousand years. For a thousand years, they've been doing the Day of Atonement. And every year they have to do it again. Not only that, every day they have morning and evening sacrifices. So we're up to 365,000 sacrifices. And the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10 that built into this Old Testament sacrificial system was this message. It's not really working. How do we know that message is built into it? Hebrews 10 says, because they had to do it over and over and over and over again. And so built into the sacrificial system that God gave them is the message that this is not the solution to your sin problem, but it's pointing to the solution. And here God says the solution is something that the high priest Joshua is going to do by being covered in excrement. And what he's going to do is going to cleanse the land of its sin in a single day. What thousands and thousands and thousands of sacrifices could not accomplish, this filthy one is going to accomplish in a single day. Zechariah must have been like, what are you talking about? We've been doing this for thousands and thousands and thousands of times, and you're going to deal with this in a single day? And God says, yes, I'm going to put an end to the need for sacrifices because I'm going to bring the fulfillment of everything they're pointing to. How can God make such a promise? And how can it possibly come true? In Jesus, it comes true. I mean, there are some passages in the Old Testament that maybe it's sort of subtle to try and figure out how is this foreshadowing Jesus. This is one of those that's not subtle at all. Do you, do you understand that Joshua, Yeshua, is the name Jesus? <laughs> like, I mean, Zechariah even uses the name Jesus here. Jesus, the high priest, standing before the Lord on the Day of Atonement, covered in excrement. Do you see the picture? Who is the only high priest that ever dared stand before God? In the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies in heaven, of which the earthly Holy of Holies, the book of Hebrews tells us, is but a shadow, but a copy. Who? It's Jesus himself. And what happened when he dared do that? He was obliterated. 
The only high priest who ever dared stand before the Lord covered in excrement, your excrement and my excrement, all the filth, all the shame, everything that would make God want to run away from you, Jesus took it on himself and then he had the audacity to stand before God and say, treat me like I deserve. And he was destroyed. Destroyed. Torn apart. You see, Jesus had a final week of preparation for his high priestly work. He had an all-night vigil, too, but his friends didn't even stay awake. He pleaded with them, stay with me. He woke them up several times. They kept falling asleep. And one of them betrayed him with a kiss. Another one of his best friends denied that he even knew him. Three times, no less. For him, it was not a final night of encouragement. It was a night of betrayal, a beating. He wore special clothes of sorts, I guess you could say. Not white linen, but the mocking purple robe of a king. He wore a special hat, crown of thorns, when he deserved a royal diadem. And he had a public bath. He was spat upon. That was our high priest. And what he did on that day removed the land's sin in a single day. He took on filth and sin so that you could be clean so that you could have a beauty that was never possible for you to attain and a beauty that could never fade. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, that we've been given an inheritance kept in heaven for us. An inheritance, he says, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You have beauty secured for you Kept in heaven where you can't get at it to screw it up. Isn't that good news? Martin Luther talked about this. He called it the alien righteousness. And I know that's sort of a strange phrase in our day and age where you think about, you know, you know aliens and all that kind of stuff. What he meant was we have a righteousness, a beauty that's not our own. We didn't earn it. It's been given to us, but it's kept in heaven for us where it will never perish, spoil, or fade. Beware of romanticizing the cross. What Jesus did at the cross was not pretty. I, I was thinking today, you know, um, I don't know, you know, back in 1987 there was a big controversy. How, you guys maybe didn't remember this, but it was a big controversy about the National Endowment for the Arts. Do you, know, do you remember this? The, it, it, some of the... Uh, the sort of more conservative, um, religious right kind of people discovered that the National Endowment for the Arts had funded a photograph called Piss Christ. Do you know about this photograph? It was basically a crucifix, so a cross with Jesus on it, plunged into a jar of the artist's urine. And Christians all over the place freaked out. We have to defund the NEA. 
the Catholic Church. Some of the cardinals said it was blasphemous. People, you know, had, you know, they, they displayed this, this uh, art in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and a couple people attacked it with hammers, and they eventually shut down the exhibit because they also had a Rembrandt exhibit, and they were worried that it might get harmed. Yeah, but the, it, it was a huge controversy, right? But I wonder if all those Christians who were so upset about that really understood what the cross is about. Like, I don't know. The cross is about Jesus being covered in excrement. It's an ugly picture. A.W. Tozer was one of my favorite writers when I was your age, when I was in college. He has a great, a great essay about the cross where he says, you know, in our day, people wear crosses. But in the Roman times, crosses wore men. Don't romanticize the cross. It's ugly, but it's also the most beautiful, right? And I was thinking as well, you know, I mean, you guys have all seen Slumdog, you know, Millionaire. If that kid is, able, is willing to go through that latrine to get an autograph, think of what Jesus went through to secure your beauty. Can you think of Jesus doing that? Or do you just think of Jesus basically having to sort of forgive you again? Like the hardest thing for Jesus to do is to forgive you because you're just so frustrating to him. No, do you guys understand? Like Jesus prayed in the garden, if there be any other way for these people to be reconciled back to you, Father, any other way but this cross, because I do not want to go to this cross. If there be any other way, let this cup pass for me. And the Father said to him, there is no other way. And he said, then here we go. Not my will, but your will be done. And I will take it. It's not just that Jesus would rather die than live without you. It's that he would go through this for you. The work of Jesus brings security. It also brings flourishing. There's two other quick images I want to point out to you here. And they're strange. And if I had much more time, I'd talk more about them. But let me just, let me just unpack a little bit more for you and then apply all this stuff. What's the deal with the stone? What's the deal with the stone? Well, the stone, many commentators say, it must connect to Revelation because there's this idea about this inscription on our forehead. Most commentators say that the stone is connected to the priest's headdress. And so it's the imagery that, um, that there's sort of this, this clean um, stone and the eyes are the eyes of the king, the eyes of God looking at this stone and the engraved inscription. And the book of Revelation picks up on this stuff. Actually, a lot of stuff in Zechariah gets picked up in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, the imagery works itself out like this. We find that it's Christ's name that is inscribed on us, which is a way of saying that it's Christ's name that will be written on our foreheads, which is a way of saying that we have become in Christ's likeness, we've taken on his image, his beauty for our own. The, the, the imagery of the stone here and the seven eyes looking at the stone is an imagery of security, of, be, of taking on the high priest's character ourselves. The idea that you will have a new name 
and a new identity when you find refuge in Jesus. The church is the community that is to demonstrate to the watching world that there is a way to have beauty that will not fade. And then there's this image as well of sitting under the vine and the fig tree. And of each one of them saying, come sit under my vine and fig tree. What's this an image of? This is an image of flourishing. That not only will the sin be dealt with, but creation itself will be restored and rejuvenated. And each one will have blessings and will enjoy the goodness of creation to such an extent that they'll have plenty to share. And they'll say to their neighbor, come and enjoy the goodness and the beauty and the flourishing of creation the way God intended it. You see this? God will restore the creation to be a creation flourishing with good things, and each of God's people will have plenty to share. The work of Jesus, in other words, will bring healing seen in a flourishing creation abounding in good things. And the restored beauty is not just for us, for ourselves, it's for us to share. It's for sharing God's glory. And that actually gives us a little sense of what we're to be doing even now. Yes, we're to rest in the beauty that Christ gives us. Yes, we flee to, to take refuge in Christ, and all those who are in Christ are beautiful in Him. But we also have this language, this imagery of having beauty to share, flourishing to share. And what a beautiful picture we have of what the church is to be about now about being set free from so always being concerned about securing your own beauty. Do you know how much time and energy and money and effort we spend worrying about trying to make ourselves beautiful? And one of the things it does is it really, it really corrupts you in so many ways. One of the things it does is it helps you, it sort of blinds you to other beauty all around. Because you sort of have this sense that, I know that I can't really make myself beautiful, so one of the best strategies to pursue is to point out the ugliness of everything else. And the last thing I want to do is to call attention to something else that's beautiful. But God's people, when their beauty issue has been settled for them, should be the first ones to say, look at this. Our God has made a world that's a good world. It's broken in so many ways, but it still shimmers with his beauty and his glory, and it's everywhere. And what if you thought of evangelism not as just getting to people to say a prayer, but as getting people to enjoy with you the beauty of a God who has made and is now remaking a world full of God-glorifying potential, right? We should be looking for restored beauty. We should be working to restore beauty because it's what God is about. You see, we can never get rid of our longing for beauty. It's what we were made for. And it's what God is committed to giving us in Jesus, the one who secured a glorious future for God's children. I, I mentioned that C.S. Lewis quote at the beginning about how we don't want to just see beauty, but we want to enter into it and bathe in it. And he goes on in this essay, it's called The Weight of Glory, and he says this, if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, 
may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. God has promised to make us beautiful. And that has to change what we spend our energy and our worry about now. And when our beauty has been secured by Jesus, like I said, it sets us free. Don't you want to be free to look for and to work for beauty all over the place? Because you no longer have to compete with everybody else. This is what the church should be. A beautiful community that's working to bring the beauty out of brokenness and share it with everyone. This is what we're called to be about. But it starts with resting in Christ and in his beauty. Don't kill your longing for beauty. You can't do it. It'll keep creeping back in in all kinds of strange and perverted ways. You can't kill it, but you can find rest in Jesus. Let's pray together.